0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Newspring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. How are ya? How awesome was that rain yesterday? Oh, let me tell you why it's awesome for me, because it might not be awesome for you if you like, had flooding in your laundry like we kind of did a little bit. Thank you. So yesterday morning, I went to uh, soccer uh, with one of my daughters, which is okay. It's fun. I like that. It's all right. It didn't rain on me then. And, um, and then in the afternoon, I spent a few hours uh, stripping and cleaning um, our lawnmower with my 15-year-old daughter because she was really into that. That's all right, Andrew. It's not your lawnmower. It's mine. That was broken. Um, and it, just, it was just raining and, you know, the rain on the shed... Um, just reminded me of a time when I lived and worked in the bush, and because when it rained on the farm, you didn't want to really get wet necessarily, so you went in and did shed stuff. So I always kind of associate the sound of rain on the shed with kind of that memory. And it was just really cool, um, stripping and cleaning an old lawnmower. We're planning to put it back together. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. I might need your mower a bit longer, Andrew, thanks. Anyway, it's good. This morning... Uh, We come to a passage of Scripture which um, has the potential or has had the potential, I think, to be uh, misused and abused and mistreated and misinterpreted and misquoted over the centuries. Um, And I'm not necessarily going to address some of those issues. I'm happy to talk about them perhaps um, afterwards. We won't have time to do all that today. But I just wanted to say that as we started, just to kind of point out that, um, you know, sometimes we come to a passage of Scripture, and particularly one like this, and it gets taken out of its context and used just as a standalone passage. And that's really dangerous. It can be really dangerous. doesn't mean that there's not elements of truth to what's being said, if you take it out and isolate it from its context. Um, but this is one of those passages where that has happened a lot. Um, and I'm hoping to kind of reinsert it into its context this morning so that we get a deeper uh, appreciation of really what, is, what Jesus is saying here and what it means for us as the church. So we're going to dive in. There's lots of scripture this morning. So I hope you've got your Bibles with you. We're going to have some of them on the screen. Um, and this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. So let's, uh, let me just read through that, those verses for this morning. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything takes place. So anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would not only just open our ears, but our hearts clear our mind from the things this week that have been a distraction so that we might uh, really kind of focus on your word and what you have to say to us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We were praying that this morning, um, as a, as just before we started, um, that, that, the, that the human part of us would just kind of disappear this morning and that we'd just be in fellowship with God because I'm, I'm a firm believer that this this the spirit that brings and leads us into truth. And we want that this morning. So that's where we're going. Excuse me a moment. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Before we go any further into this passage, um, we need to take a brief look at the context of this passage, which we've actually been doing over the past several weeks. Verses 1 to 12, which we've been calling, which we know as the Beatitudes, uh, summarise the characteristic attitudes of those who would follow Jesus. And we've been talking about that. And if you've been here, you might recall from the series so far that the Beatitudes are not about how we should behave so that God would be nice to us. They're not things that we need to do so that we can get into heaven. In other words, they are actually about a different way of living. And we've been talking about that in detail. A different way of living that changes the world in which we live as on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer. This new rule, this heaven's kingdom realm here on earth now is about Jesus bringing change. It's about Jesus bringing restoration, healing and peace through a kingdom minded people. That's what the Beatitudes are. It's God doing his work through us, those who follow Jesus. When you stop and view the Beatitudes uh, through a lens of what it means to be in union with God, through the lens of what it means to be participating with him in seeing the world restored into wholeness, you begin to see them not as a set of kind of rules or regulations that need to be necessarily be obeyed and they're not even um, moral codes of conduct in one sense, but you begin to view them as the agenda for the Christian life the way we ought to be living as kingdom-minded people. Spiritual poverty, grief over sin, meekness, hunger for righteousness, mercy, a pure heart, being peacemakers, expecting and embracing persecution. These are all attitudes and behaviours that characterise a follower of Jesus. But this different way of living raises a couple of questions. The first question that it raises in my mind is, why live like this? I mean, let's be honest. Who really wants to be meek? Who's embracing persecution today? Really? We need to live like this? Jesus goes on to explain why we would live like this in the following verses. And we looked at this in the the last week. In verses 13 to 16, he says, be salt and light. That's the why. Why do we live like this? So that you might be salt and light. But why do we need to be salt and light? That's another question that this passage asks of us. And Dave talked about this last week, and really he only got to talk about salt. We ran out of time to talk about light. I know he had a heap more to say about that, um, and maybe we can revisit that at some point. And actually, I'm just going to say up front today, although we have four verses to look at, we're probably only going to get to verse 17. (laughs) But anyway. But why do we live as salt and light? Because in a dark and bland world, we need saltiness and brightness. Basically, I'm just kind of making it simple. That's the way we live as kingdom-minded people. And we do that because that actually honours God. That's why we live as salt and light. It honours God. Why do we live a beatitude-focused life? Um, because it makes us salty and it makes us bright. Why do we want to be salty and bright? Because it honours God. That's kind of the flow of what Jesus is saying here. Why be merciful? Because it honours God. Why be pure in heart? Because it honours God. Why be meek and self-controlled and self-centred? And in a, in a, sorry, why should we be meek in a self-centred and self-focused world or culture? Because it honours God. Why be peacemakers in a hostile world? Because it honours God. That's why. Paul echoes this theme in his letter to Titus, in Titus chapter 2. I think we've got it on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. It trains us to reject godless ways and worldly desires and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the happy fulfilment or the blessedness. There's that word that we've been looking at. As we wait for the happy fulfilment of our hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, he gave himself to us. Sorry, he gave himself for us to set us free from every kind of lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are truly his, who are eager to do good. Do you see the connection? God is making us a kingdom-minded people, and when we live like that as salty and bright people, it honors him, it brings glory to his name. And that's what he's doing for his church. So I guess we might ask this question: who's eager to do good? Oh wrong, wrong crowd <laughs> Of course we are we, we all desire to live like that, don 't we? Of course we do, because living our life in a kingdom minded way brings honor to God, and we want to do that. we know that 's what we were created for. And you know, even when you examine the life of Jesus, you quickly discover that he himself embodies each and every one of the Beatitudes. It's an interesting study and we kind of haven't really gone there yet. But if you were to go back through the Beatitudes and have a look at them carefully, you would see that each and every one of them spoke into who and what Jesus was like, who he was and what he was like. And as his followers were called to be like him to live as he lived, to act as he acted, to honour God with every aspect of who we are, with every aspect of our being. That's what it means to honour him. The other question that this passage, I think, raises for us and that we need to ask is, how did all this teaching... Because, you know, that sounds good to us. Well, that makes sense to us. But how did this teaching sound to those who were hearing it for the first time? Is a really important question to ask right now. Because, to be honest... I think you'll find that it actually comes across as radical to them and somewhat opposed to what they've been taught. Think about it. You see, you have to remember that these people believed that the law of Moses was their unique possession, that it was given to them and them alone as his chosen people. It was given to them by God himself through Moses And so to repeal it, or to abolish it, is actually blasphemy. And make no mistake, this new teaching does seem to be turning the established traditions upside down. And so it's no wonder when we read the first part of verse 17, let's have a look at it again. Because it actually gives us a a clue as to what is possibly going on in this conversation. Jesus actually preempts. He gives us a bit of a hint. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why do you think he says, do not think? Because that's what they were thinking. <laughs> or potentially. Because what he was saying potentially had the, had the possibility of leading someone down that train of thought. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. That tells me straight away that the things that he is saying potentially may come across as, you know what, Let's get away. let's do away with all of that. And they're going, hang on a minute, that's God's word given to us, his chosen people, and are you saying, let's get rid of it? He says, don't think that, I haven't come to abolish it. This got me to thinking, what was actually Jesus, what was he actually saying that might be causing people to think this? Well, for starters... He seemed to be suggesting that the kingdom of heaven belongs not to those who fall under a, the covenant promise given to Abraham, but to those who understand their spiritual poverty, their utter need and dependence on God. That's a little bit different. He seemed to be saying that those who mourn over their sin, who humble themselves before God, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are the ones whom God blesses. Hang, hang on a minute. That's a little bit different. The corresponding promises of comfort, inheritance of the land and satisfaction, all promises given to Israel, by the way, seemed now to be available to everyone. And the merciful, the pure in heart, those who actively pursue peace, God will not only show mercy to them, Jesus says, he says they'll actually see God. God. In fact, they'll be called children of God. Do you see how they might think that he's teaching something a little radical and different? And heretical. And then as if to add insult to injury, (laughs) Jesus compares those who are persecuted because of him to the prophets. And says that, that because they follow in his footsteps, that they will be greatly rewarded in heaven? Oh my goodness. What is this new teaching? And by what authority does this Jesus of Nazareth have to say such things? It, it's outrageous as God's chosen people, as people who lived according to the law given to them by God through Moses. They were the only ones, or so they thought, that could lay claim to God's promises of blessing, inheritance and future prosperity. It was for them. Surely the kingdom of heaven belonged only to those who had lived and died by the law. What is Jesus saying? And yet with one simple statement, as he often does, Jesus disarms their argument. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. The key to understanding this passage hangs on our understanding of the word fulfill. And in particular, how Matthew uses it in his gospel. Because actually, fulfillment is a theme that Matthew has been developing all the way through this gospel so far. I don't know if you've realized that. We're going to have a look at that because it's really important. You see, right from the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew goes to great lengths to point out that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah who came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Messiah did, just, did not just arrive on the earth unannounced. <laughs> he didn't just kind of plop out of heaven in a manger without any warning And Matthew goes to great lengths to show his audience in great detail, actually, that the birth and early life of Jesus were not only predicted centuries before his arrival, that that when he actually appeared, he fulfilled everything that was spoken about him. I'm going to run through a few of these just so you can see um, what Matthew is doing. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this happens so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, in this case, the prophet Isaiah, would be fulfilled look the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel which means God with us from about Isaiah 7 in Matthew chapter 2 verses 4 to 6 uh, a passage speaking about Herod the great after assembling all the chief priests and experts in the law he asked them where the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea they said for it is written this way by the prophet speaking of Micah And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. um, Speaking of uh, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. Then he got up, took the child and his mother at night, and went to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod died. In this way, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet was fulfilled. I called my son out of Egypt, a quotation from Hosea. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, speaking of John the Baptist, for he is the one who was spoken of by Isaiah. It's not even actually, it's about Jesus, but it's through John the Baptist. For he is the one who was spoken of by Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. A quote from Isaiah 40. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. I'm going through all of them, by the way. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned, he went to Galilee. When in Galilee, he moves from Nazareth to make his home in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet would be, say it, fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali by the way of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, a people who sit in darkness have seen a great light, and those sitting in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Wow, from Isaiah 9, actually that's all of them. So you can see that all through his Gospel so far, Matthew has been developing this theme of fulfilment and he's doing so to lay a foundation so that when we come to the passage that we're in this morning, he can continue that theme and that's really important to understand because it gives us a context for what is being said here. When Jesus says that he came to fulfil the law and prophets, Matthew wants his audience and us to understand that in the light of what he's already been saying, that it's a proof, it's a confirmation of who the Messiah is. But it's actually more than that. In other words, the law and the prophets point towards the Messiah coming for sure. They point towards him prophetically and Jesus' life and ministry fulfils all that was spoken about the one who would come. With this understanding, Matthew's intent uh, for the use of this word fulfilment becomes clear, I think, and it actually begins to help us understand what verses 17, 18, 19 and 20 are really about. It is important, however, to note that this idea of fulfilment works on two levels, as is often the case with uh, things in the scripture. You see, not only does Jesus fulfill the prophecies written in the law that are written in the law and the prophets about him, he also fulfills the purpose of the law. So he fulfills it in two ways. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. In other words, Jesus' purpose was to embody the word of God, to fully accomplish all that was written. Romans 10.4 tells us Christ is the culmination of the law. By living a perfect life, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. In his sacrificial death, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. And so you can see quite clearly, I think, that he didn't come to get rid of the law. No, not at all. He came to bring it to fulfilment. What his coming did get rid of, by the way, is the old covenant. And scripture talks about that very clearly, that he came to abolish the old covenant and deliver a new one. That's what His coming did do. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm going to read through this whole passage of scripture for you because I want you to see the connections and where it fits. Just listen carefully to the language. The old system, under, uh, so this is chapter 10 of Hebrews. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. A dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshippers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually remained, reminded them of their sin year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or or other offerings for sin. And then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written about me as it is written about me in the scriptures. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to kind of unpack that little statement. He says, first Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. Jesus cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day after day, offering the same sacrifice again and again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honour at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. You know, I think that's what we learned when we studied Ephesians. That as the church, as God's chosen and blessed people, that when we live our lives in a holy and righteous way, we're actually a testimony to what God is doing. Remember how it talks about that it would confound or disrupt the powers of the world when we live like this? That's what it does. It wobbles the spiritual realm. <laughs> for by that one offering, he made... He made he, sorry. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Amen. I, I read all that to you because I want, I want to help you, and this has been really helpful for me in my thinking, to get a, a, a grasp... And what it is that that Jesus is saying, what Matthew is trying to communicate to us through this part of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to try and put all this in a different way because if you're anything like me, there's there's lots of different ways to learn and the more ways you can get, the better. When God gave the law... To his people, let's say that this book represents the law. So, the so the first the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament—Genesis, you know, Exodus, so uh, on—the Mosaic law. When God gave the law to the people through Moses, he wasn't asking for perfection. Actually, he was looking for obedience. Obedience always comes out of faith and trust, always has, always will. When the people lost faith and lacked trust and were disobedient and misbehaved, as humans I want to do, God sent the prophets and that's probably how he sent them. When the people turned their back on God, he spoke to them through the prophets, giving them chance after chance after chance after chance to what? To live in obedience. Not to practice the law out of duty, but to love him and worship him and love others and so demonstrate his love to the world to live for him to be his chosen people set apart salt and light in a corrupt and broken world that's what he was doing and he had to remind them over and over and over again the law and the prophets the law and the prophets and often in scriptures, when you read the word, the law, uh, we're talking, they're talking about the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets, not just the Mosaic law. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to distinguish, but that's usually what is being meant, the law and the prophets. And what both the law and the prophets were saying, if you want to boil the whole Old Testament down into a single statement, hello, what they did was they pointed people towards the true path to Righteousness. That's what they do. They point people towards the true path to righteousness. And that path is and always has been that people are made right by God through faith. Always. I won't go on the other side of the table, but if we could step around onto the other side of the table, it would cause us to remember that um, even before the law was given... Even before God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave the law and and hundreds, maybe even a thousand years before the prophets came. People like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and many, many others, by the way, were counted as God as being righteous because of their faith. They didn't just believe in God. They believed him. Him and there's a big difference between those two statements they didn't just believe in god they believed him and more importantly they were obedient to him obedience that came out of faith and trust read the story of abraham read the story of isaac jacob and so many other people who walked righteously before the lord they were obedient and faith they were obedient out of faith and trust And it was credited to them as righteousness. Hebrews talks about that a lot. You see, in the Old Testament, a person was justified, which just means made right with God, when they put their faith in God's promise to forgive sin and restore relationship. In obedience to that promise, a person would then live according to God's law, which he gave, as a way of showing that they not only believed him, but as a demonstration of God's faithfulness to them, You see how it works? They obeyed the law. Here we go again, around in circles. They obeyed the law because it honoured him, it brought glory to his name. When Jesus came, when the Messiah was born into the human experience, all that changed. It changed. Because all that the law and the prophets were pointing towards arrived in the Messiah. Does that make sense? The law and the prophets are a signpost given by God to his people which demonstrate how to live a righteous life and, then, and that through faith and obedience and trust you could honour God in, in your life. But they all pointed towards... The coming of the anointed one who is Jesus. That's one of their primary functions. They pointed toward the path to righteousness and that righteousness is fulfilled in the coming of the Christ. So Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law and the prophets because actually they still do what they're designed to do. Does that kind of make sense to you? If you knew nothing about Jesus and were only introduced to the law and prophets, they would still act as a signpost that point to the path of righteousness. They always will because that's why they were given. But now that he has come, it's not that we don't need the Old Testament. We just don't need the signpost anymore because we've already got Jesus. But they still point that way. Does that make sense? It is a little bit of a mind. But that's what they do, amongst other things. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need the Old Testament, heaven forbid, we do. We absolutely do need the Old Testament because the, the, pen, the, the books of the law and the stories that, that around what happened with, with Israel and Judah contain story after story after story and give example after example after example of what it looks like to walk in righteousness. So there's so much that we can learn from that, so much. In fact, I don't think that we can actually really understand who Jesus is in our lives unless we understand the sign, what the signpost was pointing toward. So we need them, absolutely. It's just that now that we're on the other side of his first coming, we no longer need to sign that points towards Jesus because he's already here. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what Paul was talking about in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3. I think you can have a read along as well. Now before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners until the coming faith would be revealed. Thus the law had become our guardian until Christ, so that we could be declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you were baptized in, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have closed yourself with Christ, there is neither, and we learnt this in Ephesians as well, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ. Then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Wow, it just comes right back to the beginning again. The promise that was given way over there and can be found flowing all through this and is fulfilled in Jesus is that we are heirs to God's promise. Always were, always will be. Because He is faithful. Uh, the the team can uh, come up. So, was this new teaching coming from the mouth of Jesus uh, really so radical? Was he really trying to turn the established traditions upside down? Well, yes and no. <laughs> Because when you stop and think about it, when you actually stop to consider what it was that Jesus was inviting people into, you discover that it wasn't all that different from what God had been asking from his people all along, actually. God has always been looking for those who will mourn after their sin. God has always been looking for those who will humble themselves before him. God has always been looking for those um, who would hunger and thirst for righteousness. God has always insisted that his people be merciful, pure in heart, actively pursuing peace. God's greatest desire was that the children of Israel would be his people. Holy and set apart for his glory amongst the nations. And that he would be their God and their father. Nothing has changed in that regard. What is radical about what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus now, in in one sense, opens up the intent of the law and shows us what it really looks like to live out heaven's kingdom rule here on earth. Interestingly, I think, This new way of living is not actually that new. It's actually very old. It's how God intended for his people to live all along. Yes, at the coming of Christ is is the beginning of a new chapter, but we're part of the same narrative. It's more than a story. It's an epic because it continues into eternity. And we are part of that. We are written into that. Jesus summed up this way of living in Matthew chapter 22 in response to the Pharisees' question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They always want to nail it down to one thing. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're trying to trap him, of course. And Jesus says this, and we know it so well, but I wonder if we really know it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. Did you hear that? All the law, all the prophets hang on those two things. And the Beatitudes sum that up beautifully. Beautifully but it doesn't stop there, I'm stopping here, but it doesn't stop there, you're going to have to come next week, or I think it's next week, because in the following section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually starts to give some specific examples of what living this way really looks like, and he starts to really nail it down, and it's a fascinating study, so I hope you can come along and be a part of that. God is calling to himself a people who will live in such a way that it not only just brings glory and honour to his name, that, that we would be salt and light to a desperately needy world. That's not new. That's what he's always been doing. It's a part of his plan for restoration of the world. And what's really cool and very humbling is that he invites us to participate in that, as the church, as his people. Father, we thank you for your word it's just sometimes it's just we're overwhelmed by its beauty and its complexity and at the same time its simplicity. And when we step back and look at the bigger picture, we see that you have been working and weaving your plan, your desire, your goals, your objectives, your agenda through your people all along. And that as followers of your son, Jesus, you call us again. You graft us into what you're doing so that we might be a blessing to the nations and that we might glorify and honour your name. In all that we do, in the way that we live, the way that we speak. Help us to be hungry and thirsty for that truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.